You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. Hidden History is an audio project of Bulletin Technologies, LLC. To learn about how you can fly for a fraction of the cost of commercial, visit bulletinflights.com. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to the first episode in a three-part series on mining and labor, and our season two opener. In the southeast corner of Arizona, nestled among large rocky hills dotted with scrub brush and cacti, sits the small town of Bisbee. Like so many others, Bisbee exploded around the turn of the century thanks to a boom in North American mining. Today, in 2018, mining is dangerous business. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was immeasurably worse. A brutal, violent slog through the dark, high in risk and incredibly low in reward. In the region surrounding Bisbee, the mining was especially difficult, and the conditions especially bad. Modern Bisbee has been called one of the coolest small towns in the country. It was once the largest city in Arizona, and it has a secret. This is Hidden History. And you're listening to episode 15, 16 Tons. Disaster in the coal fields. 37 miners were trapped by a gas explosion 600 feet underground in this mine at Carmichael's, Pennsylvania. Rescue teams go into action immediately as ambulances and emergency vehicles stand by. People in mining communities live daily within the shadow of disaster, and as they wait in hope, the first wave of searchers pushes into the shattered mine, ready to face deadly methane gas. Wait and pray and hope. There is nothing else the families can do as the hours pass. Then some bodies are recovered and hopes dim for the safety of the others. Wait and pray and hope. As the hours pass, so does hope. 37 men are entombed, many times that number bereaved. Working in six-man crews, rescue workers refused to give up until the very end. Death was the victor after a five-day race against time. That was newsreel audio from 1962 about the Rubina coal mine disaster in Carmichael's, Pennsylvania. Caused by a gas explosion deep inside the mine, three miles from the shaft entrance, 37 men who went down into the mine to start their shift never came out. Over 50 years later, their bodies still rest far beneath the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania. If a mine is well managed and abides by all appropriate safety standards laid out by the Mining Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, it can operate successfully for decades without an incident like that. To many, the first mental association for the word mining, especially coal mining, is one of danger, of black lung, of poverty. But to many more, a different word comes to mind. Unions. In the early days, they were names like the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, 
the industrial workers of the world and the United Mine Workers. Today, few of these big names remain. The United Mine Workers Union, or UMW, is one of them. The unionization of the mining industry could often be more dangerous than the mining itself. It was a gargantuan struggle that's largely been left out of the modern historical narrative of the United States. And to many, it seems that the age of the mining union is over. In 2014, the last union mine in one of the largest coal fields in the country, Eastern Kentucky, closed for good. A long and complex tale should be started at the beginning, and there are fewer better places to begin the dramatic story of American mining unions than Bisbee, Arizona. It's June 1917, and before the sun has risen up over the hilly desert landscape, thousands of copper miners are ready to begin their shift in one of the many shafts owned by the Phelps Dodge Corporation. They're the first shift out of three needed to keep the mines running 24 hours a day. Tensions between miners and management are high, higher than usual. Two years prior, at the tail end of 1915, a strike in Clifton, 160 miles north of Bisbee, sowed the seeds of discontent among Arizona miners, and unions began to gain traction throughout the state. In Bisbee, however, progress stalled. Charles Moyer, president of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, best known for his response to the Italian Hall disaster and his alleged involvement in the assassination of a former Idaho governor, wasn't pulling his weight. And so, in the beginning months of 1917, the Industrial Workers of the World, a union he helped found, stepped in to do his job for him. For the IWW, the organization of Bisbee Mines was an ideological battle. They wanted union members signed, and the rest didn't really matter. The union they established, the Local 800, had over 1,000 members. Only 40% of them paid dues. They would need the biggest union they could if they wanted to take on Phelps Dodge and win. In Bisbee, the Phelps Dodge Corporation was king. They owned the department store, the hospital, the library, the newspaper, the hotel, and the people. You could say that in Bisbee, the Phelps Dodge Corporation owned the law, and Local 800 was about to find out just how accurate that statement was. World War I was raging on, and nine days after the controversial Espionage Act was made law, the IWW presented the three main mining companies operating in Bisbee with their list of demands. Thanks to the prevailing attitudes of the time, management very easily spun the unionization as an anti-American push to disrupt the war effort. Their list of demands was eminently reasonable. Ending the theft prevention physicals given after each shift, ending blasting while miners were still in the mine, ending discrimination against foreign, minority, and union workers, ending the assignment of unpaid construction work to miners, the abolition of the bonus system, which compensated miners based on the quality of the ore they mined, 
allowing for vast favoritism and corruption. And finally, the establishment of a fixed wage of $6 a day, instead of the then-current practice of a sliding-scale wage based on the market price of copper. The companies refused every single demand, citing the war effort as their justification. So the industrial workers of the world called a strike. And soon over half the mine workers in Bisbee had walked off the job. Rumors began to spread that the strike was riddled with pro-German agents, that they had stored explosives around town and were just waiting to sabotage the mines. Even though the strike was wholly peaceful, it didn't stop Bisbee's mining concerns from asking for help. The day after the strike began, the county sheriff, Harry Wheeler, asked the governor, Thomas Campbell, to telegraph the White House. They wanted federal troops. Woodrow Wilson declined, and when the contested election that brought Governor Campbell to power was overturned in court, the seat went to former Governor George Hunt, a pro-labor politician who Wilson appointed as strike mediator. Management knew that Hunt, who had previously refused to call the state militia in during previous labor struggles, would not come down hard on the situation in Bisbee. So they figured it was time they took matters into their own hands. The Citizens Protective League, an anti-labor group formed during a previous strike, quickly resurfaced and was given over to the control of Sheriff Wheeler. Simultaneously, the Workmen's Loyalty League was formed by pro-corporate miners. They were nothing more than dangerous vigilante groups, and on July 11, 1917, they held a series of secret meetings to discuss just how to deal with the union problem. On July 12th at 2 in the morning, loyalty leaguers around the region were given the call to assemble in Bisbee. By 5 a.m., more than 2,000 converged on the town. They wore white cloth armbands so they could be distinguished from the striking miners, and every one had been deputized by the sheriff's department. Their first act was the seizure of the Western Union Telegraph Station. No one in the outside world would know about what was about to happen. At 6.30, the order came down from Sheriff Wheeler to let the work begin. The strikers were rounded up wherever they were, in bed, at home, in town, and though the deputies were told to avoid violence, as one could expect, this wasn't the reality. Cases of theft, vandalism, as well as physical and sexual violence soon came to light. In the end, over 1,100 people were rounded up at gunpoint. Many of these men staring down the barrel weren't strikers. They weren't even miners. But that didn't stop the vigilantes from marching everyone to a makeshift prison two miles down the road at the Warren baseball field. Armed men patrolled the bleachers and hounded the miners to give up the strike. Anyone that would put on a white cloth armband could leave. This, though, did not end the strike. So at 11 a.m., a train supplied by El Peso and Southwestern Railway, consisting of 23 cattle cars, arrived in Bisbee. We're not certain of the exact number, but around 1,200 people were forced on board. 
The floors were covered in three inches of solid manure, and even though the temperature was in the mid-90s, the strikers were not provided with food or water, and in fact had not had access to either since their initial arrests. Over the next 16 hours, the train would take them just shy of 200 miles through the desert. The strikers' only respite came when the train stopped for water in Douglas, and the 1,200 men on board the train were given a small amount of it. There are 186 armed guards on board, a machine gun mounted on top of the train. Similar emplacements perched high on hills overlooking the track which 200 armed guards patrolled. El Peso and Southwestern sought to unload the train across the state line in Columbus, New Mexico. But when the town couldn't accommodate so many men, the train inched towards Hermanas and was abandoned. While the residents and workers of Bisbee were being deported, the sheriff's department was setting up blockades on every access road. The town was only accessible to those with a sheriff-issued passport. They established a rigged court to try those accused of harming the mining industry. Those found guilty would also be deported. Those who returned would be lynched. Though they were later delivered water and food rations, the stranded strikers were completely lacking in shelter for almost a month, until July 14th, when the U.S. Army escorted them 20 miles back to Columbus, where they would be detained in a tent city for several months. After mounting legal pressure, President Wilson named a task force to investigate the Bisbee deportation. In their report, they called it what it was, wholly illegal and without any authority in law, either state or federal. The federal government deferred to the state of Arizona to pursue punishment. Arizona decided to do nothing. About 300 victims of the Bisbee deportation sued both the Bisbee Copper Companies and the El Peso and Southwestern Railroad. Not a single one came to trial. In lawsuits to recover lost wages, juries thought the deportation was, quote, good public policy, and refused to recommend compensation. Miners also brought suit against 224 of the vigilante thugs. 223 were dropped or dismissed. Only one came to trial. Not guilty. Almost a year after the deportation, on May 15, 1918, the Department of Justice issued arrest warrants for 21 executives of the Phelps Dodge Corporation. Phelps Dodge attorneys filed a motion to dismiss the case from district court. The reason? No federal laws had been violated. Eventually, in the 1920 case United States v. Wheeler, the Supreme Court agreed, eight to one. Phelps Dodge existed all the way up until 2007, when it was absorbed by industrial conglomerate Freeport McMoran. Nobody has ever faced the legal ramifications of the Bisbee deportation. Like so many labor struggles in the early 20th century, the Bisbee miners' day in court came and went. I'd like to end this week's show with one of the most famous mining songs ever recorded. 
Tennessee Ernie Ford's 16 Tons. This has been part one of a three-part series on historical labor relations in mining. Tune in to next week's episode about the massive powder keg that was West Virginia in 1921. Listen to Hidden History online at hiddenhistory.show or on the air on 88.3 FM WDCV every Wednesday at 5.30. Look for Hidden History on your Apple Podcasts app or wherever fine podcasts are found. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons a number nine coal And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain Fighting and trouble are my middle name I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line Can't no high-toned woman make me walk the line You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I To the company store